0: Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today, first imminently is Christo Sims, who looks at the long history of American educational reform through the case study of a Manhattan middle school. And at the bottom of the hour, Christian Parenti examines the threat presented by climate change to coastal cities where most of the world's economic and cultural activity happens. First, school reform. As we'll hear from Christo Sims, is a long tradition in the U.S. going back to the 19th century of looking to the schools to solve our social problems, that somehow, if we got education right, everything else in society would fall into place. The latest iteration of this hardy perennial, which is getting kind of old by now, is that tech will save us, though from what I hear, some Silicon Valley execs like to send their kids to Waldorf schools where computers are forbidden. Sims spent several years studying a new public middle school in Manhattan, one that was showered the elite foundation cash from birth. Its pedagogical philosophy is a curious one, The curriculum is organized on the model of video games. Students study ancient Greece by pretending they're spies in the Peloponnesian War, or make up a game to save an imaginary town from environmental disaster. Some of this sounds like the classic project-based approach of progressive education, but with a high-tech overlay. Turns out, though, the convention quickly reasserts itself, contrary to the wishes of its founders. Christo Sims, an assistant professor of communication at the University of California, San Diego, writes up the story in his new book, Disruptive Fixation, School Reform and the Pitfalls of Techno-Idealism, published by Princeton University Press. Christo Sims. There's a long tradition in American uh, education of trying to fix the society's problems through the schools, right?
1: Yeah. Give us the the brief rundown on what that's been like. how, How far back does it go? Basically, it goes as far back as there has been Uh, compulsory public schooling and some of those uh, fixes are fairly consistent things like trying to create equality of opportunity um, being the kind of great equalizer others have to do with things like trying to kind of create a harmonious polity particularly around things like immigration um, so to kind of americanize uh, students but basically from the beginning there's always been these rather large hopes of what education can do um, which have always fallen short. So one of the kind of aspects of American education in particular is just perpetual cycles where people think it's in crisis and needs urgent reform.
0: There's a constant discourse of crisis around the schools, and you at one point quote what, three or four passages from the early 20th century to the, the present. And aside from you know, changing styles of language, the concepts are virtually identical, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's... There's always kind of slightly different conditions, of course, in which these calls for sort of urgent and disruptive reform spring forth. But yeah, the calls are actually remarkably consistent. And then also that there's a tendency, um, there's a there's a historian at Stanford named Larry Cuban, who's now retired. But he found that each time there's a new kind of technology, media technology, whether it's radio or film or, um, you know, the personal computer, it's like, okay, now we have the means by which to finally realize these longer-standing kind of yearnings.
0: Yeah, uh, Thomas Edison thought that we'd we'd no longer have textbooks, but just
1: motion pictures. Exactly. The motion picture for Edison, and there's a computer scientist at MIT, Seymour Papert, that had very similar ideas with the personal computer, and that's then, of course, been kind of remade with the Internet and then mobile devices.
0: MOOCs. MOOCs will save us now, yes. Do you have to do, teach one of those?
1: No, thankfully not. No, I, <laughs> I get to do the old-fashioned large lecture hall, though, with uh, 400 students. Uh, not that that's uh, an ideal situation either.
0: It seems that most of these reformers, uh, in all their evangelical zeal, don't do much reflection on how the schools are embedded in a larger society. So if they don't change the society, they can fiddle with the schools all they like, but you know, won't they sort of default back to what they were?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the crux of the issue, is that these uh, larger societal issues get delegated to educational institutions and reformers and sometimes these, these new technology, you know, people who specialize in whatever the new technology is at the moment, so hence the Edison reference before. And they're not unique. It's not just an education uh, issue, but once it kind of gets delegated to these experts, there's a tendency to kind of uh, depoliticize and, and kind of treat it as a technical problem as opposed to something that's very much enmeshed in broader social and political issues. But there's a paradox in that a lot of these reformers are dependent
0: upon experienced people in the field uh, to show them the way, right? So that is almost a way for convention to reassert itself.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, So part of it is that a lot of times the calls for, okay, let's finally fix our schools or radically transform our schools will come from people who aren't experts in, say, education reform. And Maybe they're philanthropists, or um, right now it's a lot of people in the tech who've accumulated quite a bit of money in the tech industries or in the finance industries. In New York City, it's all these hedge fund guys. It's, right, uh, right. And on the West Coast, you have that too, but there's also a lot of the kind of big tech moguls who have a stake in education reform. I think Steve Jobs' uh, widow is about to launch some big thing in the next couple of days. So. Yeah, and then
0: Mark Zuckerberg is going to save the Newark schools too, right? So you uh, did a case study uh, in this, uh, a, uh, a school in Manhattan um, which whose anonymity we are intent to preserve. It came with a, a mission organized around technology, right? What was the, f- the founding mission of, of this school? Well, the founding
1: mission of the school was that it was very much inspired by um, some prominent learning theorists who had seen in video games uh, kind of an ideal model for how to organize learning. And there's, there's something to that in that games provide kind of a constant uh, series of incrementally more difficult challenges that you have to work through, and they provide a kind of world into which you're doing that, and you can kind of take on the identity of uh, a character. And by doing that, the theory is that uh, you, know, you learn not even necessarily by purposely thinking you're learning, you're trying to play the game. But as you do that, you're learning how to do different things. So the initial inspiration was very much tied to that sort of pedagogic philosophy, uh, which has a long tradition, not around games per se, but uh, going back to reformers like Dewey, as we were talking about earlier, of kind of learning by doing, this is a more active and engaging way to do a uh, kind of learning. And maybe we can translate that into a way to organize this.
0: Yeah, well, for younger children, there was the use of play as a model for for
1: absolutely yeah so play is definitely was a huge part of it but then there's a lot of other um, uh, more optimistic takes on new technologies in addition to just games so there's a lot of people in silicon valley and elsewhere that have seen uh, with more recent media technologies the prospect that we don't just have to be consumers we can also be makers and creators and uh, innovators and so forth and so that was also very much part of it, that, okay, now that we have these tools that let you make and remix media and so forth, that you could use those as a way to make students more engaged and active.
0: Yeah, a few years ago, I, I interviewed Terry Moe, who's one of the, uh, the the UR educational reformers uh, of the present era. And to him, computers were a cheap replacement for teachers, that he hated teachers' unions. He thought that Experience really didn't ma- matter much in in the field of education, even though he was at Stanford for 30 years, uh, and that you know the iPad would replace the unionized teacher in his uh, his world. This is not the model that you're talking about.
1: No, definitely not. The education reform world is you know very heterogeneous and politically divided, and like any sort of professional community, there's lots of different controversies and people arguing over which approach is better. So yeah, there have been. Uh, reformers who think this we can use the technology to make things more efficient MOOCs is obviously tied to that like we can reach with one well-produced MOOC class um, you know thousands and thousands of students these reformers weren't at all trying to do that although they did run into similar challenges which is how do you try to scale this model they definitely weren't trying to get rid of teachers um, but they imagined teachers as having more of kind of a facilitating role rather than an authoritative one
0: Okay, so how is this school filled? Uh, you know, New York City has a very um, active choice program, I, I know it firsthand. Yeah. The school was created and, uh, and uh, filled uh, using that, that, that choice system, right? Right,
1: so the choice reforms in New York um, came about in the Bloomberg era, and the idea is that, and you know this from your own experience, in elementary school you tend to go to school in your neighborhood based on where you live, but then when you get to sixth grade, or really it starts in the fall of your fifth grade year, you start touring around different middle schools in the district and you apply to them. And then there's a matching algorithm that nobody seems to know exactly how it works um, that matches uh, prospective families to schools. So some of the older middle schools that have been established for a while have uh, selection criteria like exam scores and things like that in their admissions processes, but newer schools in the choice system Uh, aren't allowed to do that, so they have to use a, a metric called informed choice, which is then, you know, it's pretty ambiguous and it's left up to schools to try to figure out how to implement that.
0: And uh, the student body that resulted, uh, it started with a first or the sixth grade class, and that was going to fill upwards uh, with time. Yeah. But what was it like? It was a pretty mixed student body.
1: Yeah, so one of the things that turned out to be one of the most uh, kind of important and interesting aspects of the school that I hadn't anticipated, and I don't think that the people who kind of designed and launched the school had anticipated as much either, is that this was very uncommonly diverse in terms of kind of social class and race for New York City public school. Uh, A lot of the schools are much more segregated on kind of lines of racialized social class with uh, parents that are more privileged and working as professionals and so forth, flocking towards certain neighborhoods or certain uh, middle schools that are hard to get into. Um, And then a lot of the other schools being predominantly lower income uh, students of color. And how did That work out? And do the students get along? Do they mix
0: up or do they break into uh, socially predetermined cliques?
1: Yeah, so I I spent a lot of attention, this is actually where I kind of began the project, was with an interest in student kind of cliques and peer cultures and how do students organize into different friendship groups and things like that when they go to school. And the thinking behind that is that factors that shape their lives outside of school end up uh, playing out in different ways within the school. Um, but not just in terms of how students respond to pedagogy and things like that, uh, but also in terms of how do they respond to each other. And especially at middle school, there's a lot of kind of concern amongst uh, kids of kind of where do I fit in, who do I hang out with, who do I sit with. In the yes, the hormones are beginning to flow. and uh... Yeah, and there's just a lot of pressure to kind of um, have a peer group. And so at this school, uh, at the beginning you saw some kind of negotiating and trying to figure it out. But pretty, pretty quickly, it settled into mostly divided cliques. Now, they weren't super antagonistic with each other. Um, and it was a small school, so they all kind of knew each other. The students would know each other. But from a student perspective, these different cliques then have different sorts of meaning, whether you're cool or not, or how you're kind of read by other kids in the school.
0: But that just sounds like pretty much any school. So yeah, that happen- th- exactly. Th- this this you know, new creation really couldn't address that classic problem of early adolescence.
1: No, definitely not. And um, there's a tradition in more critical studies of these types of issues, going back to like Paul Willis's Learning to Labor, that uh, pays a lot of attention to how kind of the cultural worlds and practices of these kind of peer cultures end up kind of mediating things like the reproduction of uh, class relations. Yeah, I mean, there's that's the embedded into the larger
0: society issue coming.
1: Right. For this school, uh, because digital media and games were so central to their initial mission, the idea was that, uh, well, today's kids are embedded and immersed in technology, and ideas like the digital generation or digital natives were very much alive and well then, and as they are still today. But that what? turned
0: out not to be fully
1: true, right? Right. No, no, absolutely. But but it was a popular stereotype. Yeah, but that's
0: interesting. that The kids were not as digitally immersed as uh, the designers of the school thought they would be.
1: Right, exactly. And this is actually something that I'd seen on earlier research projects that I worked on as well. Certainly, digital technology is an integral part of all of these kids' lives in, in very different ways. Um, but in terms of really identifying with a sort of technological identity, um, which sometimes you know, would get a label of being like geeky or something like that, it was most of the students did not identify that way and they had other concerns and interests um, even though they maybe played video games and liked video games. Maybe they were really into sports or into dance or things like that.
0: I'm speaking with Christo Sims, author of Disruptive Fixation. So how did this, you know, this theory of uh, the the, the school organized on uh, the video game model, how did that turn into pedagogical practice?
1: Again, the kind of theory versus how it actually played out is um, quite different. I think the theory is that at the beginning of each sort of trimester in your different classes there would be the introduction of a kind of narrative, a fictional narrative that would sort of frame the curriculum for the rest of the quarter. So in one class it could be something like um, the students being invited to apply to a code-breaking academy. By doing that they would learn about math and different kind of skills that you would also be expected to develop in more conventional schools but in theory you would the students would see themselves as kind of playing a game and working towards these challenges uh, to progress in the game throughout the quarter and then at the end of the the trimester. trimester. So then at the end of the trimester there would be kind of a culminating experience a kind of week-long session where supposedly that would all come together. And did it work? uh it's a good question because it's obviously depends on how you define work it didn't work at all I think in the way that uh it was written about and imagined and covered in the media and parenthetically
0: the school got a lot of attention when it opened
1: right yeah so that was another surprise to me was um the school received a tremendous amount of kind of public fanfare and attention some of that coming from actors you'd expect, such as foundations and people who are involved in education reform. But what would surprise me is that it got a lot of attention from broader media outlets that tended to portray the school in a very promising and optimistic way, um, even though it had just opened. Okay, then back to the, the curriculum and, and it, whether it worked or not. Right. I found that even at the beginning of the year, it seemed that much of what was going on actually looked quite a bit just like what you'd see in a normal school. Um, and it became much more so over time. So, for example, it was unusual at the beginning of the quarter or trimester when they'd introduced this narrative and that felt different and unusual and unconventional. But then very quickly, it would go back to regular type of schooling activities where the teacher would be giving you know, short tasks to the students and they'd all do the same tasks and then you know, have the homework and the same type of thing you would more or less see at a traditional school but but wrapped in a kind of language that was unique to these kind of fictional game worlds.
0: Right, so they, they somehow tried to reconcile the theory with the actual practice, right? How'd that work out, that act of reconciliation?
1: Well, I don't think that it... I think that they were just completely in tension with each other, and in certain moments, I think they were able to reconcile it, such as those periods at the end of each uh, trimester. Um, they'd actually kind of suspend the normal class schedule, and it really felt like, regular schooling was put on pause for a moment.
0: But you you said it made it almost felt carnival-esque, too, right?
1: Yeah, well, I think it was carnival-esque in the sense that it was kind of these brief moments of kind of inverting the established and kind of conventional hierarchies and so forth, but then you'd go back to normal school. But those moments became very important, I argue, uh, in terms of how the schools perceived by outsiders and insiders, and I saw them as... um, been very important to kind of keeping the school going from a more kind of um, keeping in terms of that reconciliation between the ideals and the acts.
0: How is the school staffed? Were the teachers and administrators from conventional backgrounds or were they somehow unconventional?
1: The teachers were mostly from conventional backgrounds, although some had some kind of like media arts experience and things like that. But then there was also A team of game designers and curriculum designers in the school. So the idea was that they would work with the teachers to kind of design these innovative uh, pedagogic experiences and the teachers would then be kind of the executors of that.
0: It's funny when we were looking around for middle schools for our kid there's one in Manhattan which is the most probably one of the most progressive ice it's called and you know the sixth graders there were reading Julius Caesar so, you know, you think this is a very progressive school, but they're doing something very traditional. How, did they do things like that at the school you studied?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of the curriculum is actually set by state standards. So they would try to introduce some material that was not something you'd find at a conventional school, particularly in this kind of media arts class they had where in the first year it's focused on game design. But in classes that are you know more focused on science or... Uh, english and language arts or social science a lot of the curriculum is um, set by people beyond the school and they don't have much control over that
0: in new york there's a lot of testing that has to
1: exactly yeah and that gets more intense the further you go along so in high school it gets even more kind of regimented but yeah so it's not just that there's these curricular standards but you're being assessed and held accountable by these you know yearly tests
0: which brings up you know this uh the nature of education reform in the u s over the last couple of decades has been to create centralized standards, but then decentralized me- means of implementing them right
1: yeah, so that's happened at the national level, but also New York was one of the kind of pioneers in this was on the one hand having kind of the overall agenda of our educational systems kind of being controlled increasingly um, in a centralized manner, but then delegating to local school officials more autonomy over how they meet those outcomes. And the idea, and this has happened in a lot of other public institutions too, is can we uh, try to unleash local leaders to be more innovative and creative and create kind of market-like conditions where the outcomes aren't profits, but things like test scores. (laughs) Yeah. Um The measurable outcomes,
0: Yes, measurable. These people love metrics, but uh, you know it seems like none of these schemes actually deliver on the metrics, but they, uh, they never seem to rethink the approach.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the metrics issue, I'm convinced by uh, some critical scholars who've written about, once you have the standardized metric, you're guaranteed to have winners and losers. So everything gets organized kind of like a race, uh, you know, hence Obama's race to the top. So there isn't a question if everybody can succeed, it just is the playing field level, which it never is, so then constant efforts to try to level the playing field.
0: Yeah, in a society where the sorting of winners and losers has gotten significantly more brutal over the last few decades, Absolutely,
1: it's odd that people think that uh, somehow the schools can escape that. Right, and actually I think schools become kind of one of the main sites where that intense competition plays out, and New York is more so than uh, most places, but I think you see this uh, pretty pervasively that the pressures on families and students to kind of uh, win in that game uh, are pretty intense because the stakes are so high on the, other, on the other side. This particular experiment, but I
0: think this is a general principle, uh, as you argue, that these, these things that begin with a, a sense of experimentation, of disruption, kind of end up falling back into convention. What does that say for the whole project of school reform? Can it be done, or should we just try to figure out to, how to make the best with what we've got?
1: I mean, I think there's always ways to run a school or run a classroom, better or worse. Um, and, but that will change quite a bit on the kind of local situation and what type of students you have and so forth. So I'm all for empowering teachers to have more autonomy and trying to reprofessionalize the profession. Um, but I think as long as these sort of broader social issues are delegated to schools and we expect them Uh, to fix those, then failure is going to be almost inevitable. So from my perspective, I think it would be, uh, at least at the political level, much more effective to try to look at those broader structures and look at things like uh, inequity of distribution and not just think that we can turn this into an educational problem. Yeah, it's funny. You know, people hold up Finland as a model uh, very
0: frequently. Uh, Finland is a, a Nordic social democracy, relatively egalitarian distribution of income, an incarceration rate a tenth of ours. And uh, it doesn't seem like you can just pick up models out of the Finnish educational system and think you can import them here without like the rest of the model coming along.
1: No, exactly. And I do think that you could see something like that exist here if we did have a very different political economy.
0: But this, this hope uh, of, uh, of some magic bullet that will fix the schools persists.
1: Oh, yeah. It, it persists and keeps getting regenerated. And part of that is that, at least with people who kind of uh, lead with technology and their reform efforts, there's always a new, hot, and often overly hyped media technology. Um, right now it might be virtual reality, and you know all this talk about it's completely unprecedented, and now we can finally do things we could never do before. And I think that allows or helps allow the sort of regeneration of the cycle of optimism that now we can finally fix these problems.
0: The more things change. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I was Krista Sims, assistant professor of communication at the University of California, San Diego, and author of Disruptive Fixation from Princeton University Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Watch Your Back by the Coat Hangers, today's musical theme, feminist punk rockers. Next, climate change and urban civilization. Over the last decade, we've seen Katrina wreck a bunch of New Orleans, Sandy play havoc with New York City and environs, and most recently, Harvey inundate Houston. As I record this, Irma is bearing down on Miami, having slapped around several islands of the Caribbean as a warm up. With climate change seriously underway, these sorts of storms will become more frequent and more intense what will that mean for our coastal cities as the oceans rise? Are they doomed? If so, what will that mean to a civilization that's heavily based in urban centers on the water? And is there anything we can do about it, or must we resign ourselves to doom? Christian Parenti, who teaches at John Jay College of the City University of New York, has a piece in the current issue of Jacobin Magazine, which is also on its website at jacobinmag.com, on precisely these topics. He took on the threat to the poor regions of the planet posed by climate change in his most recent book, Tropic of Chaos, from Nation Books. Christian Parenti. We've just been uh, through Harvey, mostly through Harvey, and Irma's on the way. But the Harvey disaster pointed to risks uh, to coastal cities, and most of our industrial civilization is coastal. So what's what's the scope of the problem here?
2: Well, the scope of the problem depends really on you know how much planning there is, but the science is very clear. There are 14 major computer models that have been running for at least 30 years, and you know we now have 30 years of observations to compare to their projections. And it turns out their projections have been more correct than wrong, and uh, we're in for rising sea levels and more frequent and intense storms, and. Interestingly, we actually have, you know, while there are more intense and actually more frequent hurricanes already occurring, they are, a higher percentage of hurricanes in the, over the last 10 years have been turning away from the Atlantic coast, and scientists think this has to do with um, rising uh, temperatures on land. I, I, yeah, I saw a right-wing Yahoo the other day who said,
0: uh, oh, it's the Washington Times, I believe, We don't have to worry about climate change because no major hurricanes have hit the U.S. in the last ten or twelve years. So, therefore, that was before Harvey. No, it's after Harvey. This was the first in ten or twelve years to make landfall.
2: So, well, I mean, you know, so there's that we've living been living under that that weird anomaly. But yeah, so the 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 science is very clear. We can expect more of this, and sea levels are rising. They rise unevenly. They uh, the seas are actually uneven. And the, the North Atlantic is rising faster than the average. And the, the best science compiled by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change project, projects minimum like three feet sea level rise, probably more like over six feet by the end of the century. But the main problem is the storm surges. And so that, that's what we're looking for. Doug, just to make the point clear, uh, it's no longer correct to speak of the climate crisis in the future tense. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Yeah, we're, we're in it. And so what my article was about was, you know, looking at the question of urban infrastructure. What happens when there's frequent inundations and uh, all of these municipalities are dependent on the property values to raise money to build defenses? And so there's this, everyone is hostage to property values. Landlords and homeowners don't want to say, I'm selling because I'm afraid of sea level rises. Governments that recognize this can't actually plan publicly about it that easily without potentially inviting a collapse in property values, and they need that for their tax base to build the defenses to be those seawalls or, you know, buying out ho- coastal homes to sort of rewild and build, you know, new wetlands and, and, you know, bio-shields, as they're sometimes called, to break storm surges. So we're in for more of this. What, what the time frame is, who knows? But you can imagine that eventually, with uh, more and more inundations of urban infrastructure, the process of rebuilding is going to be too expensive and um, a kind of rot will set in, and there will there will eventually be a kind of panic, a real estate panic around coastal infrastructure, and there will be a, a shift inward by capital and the population. And you can imagine a new kind, of, a new urban kind of coastal ghetto, a, a climate created sort of sacrifice zone, similar to the Rust Belt. You know, I mean, the Rust Belt was when it first emerged was really sort of mind blowing that that these developed and, and prosperous cities like Detroit and St. Louis could fall into dilapidation. And it's still really arresting when you go to these places and you see these beautiful houses that were once, you know, incredibly expensive and, and have all of this valuable labor and, and uh, materials in them and and yet the cities are are vacant and dead, etc. So I mean what I was proposing is I think that's probably one of gonna be one of the first ways that climate change really manifests because sometimes we think of like climate change is just all these bad things happening all at once everything is just sudden apocalypse but it's probably not going to go like that and you know agriculture probably will adapt much more easily than major coastal cities that haven't built any kind of defenses Uh, i can't remember the exact number
0: but uh it's something in the order of four or five metropolitan areas in the u.s are now responsible for something like half of gdp and I, I think that's probably true in, around the world. The coastal cities are, as income and wealth have gotten more ine- unequally distributed, so they've also gotten more unequally distributed geographically. Mm-hmm. So we've seen this rising importance of coastal metropolises over the last 20, 30. So we're talking about a pervasive crisis for the entire system.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um...
0: And are these people who talk like, oh, we can't afford to address the climate crisis. Or seem to be missing the fact that if we don't, there ain't going to be any money.
2: Yeah. It would be interesting for economists to try and calculate what the disappearance of Manhattan real estate overnight would, would do. It wouldn't happen like that. But like it's a, I think we have like a trillion dollars worth of property in, in New York City.
0: What of yeah. the fourth largest metro area in the U.S. now? Houston? Yeah. Is a mess. We have no idea what is going to, what's going to happen to it, what the long-term consequences of it would be. But there will be severe... And now if Irma hits Miami, you know, that's another major metropolitan area within the space of weeks. So, you know, we have this <laughs> real-world experiment going on.
2: Yeah, we do. And, and I mean, coastal cities are important because of their value that, uh, and that, that can have rever- reverberations in the financial markets. And also they are choke points for international trade. Chatham House did a study and they found that like 55% of world grain goes through 14 key choke points, many of which are ports. So uh, there's that aspect of it. You know, what, what happens to a globalized economy when crucial connective nodes fall into disrepair and, and crisis? And we don't know. That's the thing. We don't know. And we're not planning about it, and we're not talking about it.
0: Well, let's talk a bit about New York City. Uh, your piece does some of that. Uh, we had Sandy, what, four or five years ago? And you uh, walk around the city, you don't really see lingering effects of it, but they're there, they are, right?
2: Yeah, there's um, the main one is that you know the L line is going to be shut down. That we're going to feel the the tunnel inundated and and the salt water got into uh, crevices and and it's going to require a complete rehab. Um, But yeah, and there's there's a lot of money thrown at Sandy, and so in a way, you know, we don't see it because there was sufficient investment. I forget what the number, but there's like several billion dollars has been invested in response to building. Artificial reefs. There's, you know, so there's a lot of money was actually. Now they're building a U around Lower Manhattan. Yes, they're building a U, and um, that may or may not be um, sufficient. But we don't we don't see the effects of sandy in part because there was significant amounts of investment that went into the recovery and the rebuilding. But if that, uh, you know, if if it had been much worse, if there are three or four of those, that's going to become much less likely.
0: Now, Bloomberg was obsessed with uh, preparations, rather grandiose ones. He wanted to like build a like this giant sea arm out and, you know, across between Staten Island and New Jersey to prevent surges and such. Is his successor thinking about these things at all? Do you...
2: Bill de Blasio. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean Bill de Blasio is, you know, he's building the U, and but he's also building a tram at the I think the expense of like one and a half billion dollars along the Brooklyn waterfront. He's not uh, acknowledging the real scope of the problem. Because he doesn 't want to scare all of the parties who are hostage to real estate values, I mean one can only imagine what it would be like to uh, have to go into a room of like major real estate moguls after having given some major speech about climate change you know if you 're the mayor and like the kind of uh, hostility they would give you, so he wants to get reelected so yeah he's he 's doing the minimum, and most cities are you know uh, doing merely the minimum and um Further south, it's, it's even worse. But, but it's beginning to seep in, no pun intended. Um, like in Miami, the flooding is becoming so routine that it, the denial is kind of giving way. It's, it's clear that a lot of neighborhoods are already suffering from just routine, not storm surges, routine sun, sunshine flooding. And there's there have been academic studies that suggest that gentrification in Miami is now responding uh, that higher points of elevation are receiving more investment that patterns have shifted and it seems to be because of this you know kind of organic word of mouth acknowledgement that that there's constant flooding down down on the coast so yeah w- but by and large nothing is being done there everyone is hostage to property values. And it seems very unlikely that that will change unless there's a series of um, you know Joe Romm, who writes a, a climate uh, journalist has talked about the a climate Pearl Harbor I mean that may or may not work but right? maybe if there are a series of floods that that devastate major cities in a period of one or two years the the problem becomes undeniable and there's a complete re- rethink around all this and that could happen and one well, thing, you know, I Harvey think... is a good candidate for something like that. Yeah, yeah, and I think. That but
0: that... then you have people like Ann Coulter who said that Houston having a lesbian mayor is a better explanation for Harvey the, uh, destroying Houston than uh, the climate change.
2: But I think that in terms of these storms, you know, there's an opening for the left as well, which is that in the moment of crisis response, we see the mainstream story about the market handling all problems, being omniscient, omnipotent, we see that evaporate. And instead, what we see is human solidarity in action and also being celebrated by the mainstream. And there's also a a legitimation of redistribution that's pretty interesting. All of these people who are going to the convention centers and the churches in Houston and are getting... "Quote unquote free stuff," right? That the 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 right is constantly condemning. It's like, for a moment at least, that's totally legitimate. Beyond legitimate, it's noble to help out those in need. That opens the door to a larger conversation, which is like, really, so maybe it's it's okay to redistribute uh, to who for how long? Why? Let's like let's you know uh, extend this. This conversation, but we don't really have movements that that do that, uh, nor even really a kind of discourse around this. Mostly, what the left does, which is completely reasonable, is to focus on how the neoliberal forces use these moments of crisis to, to um, you know, try and privatize infrastructure, most famously schools in New Orleans after Katrina. But you know, with with enough organization an analysis, I I think these storms could actually lead to a type of storm socialism. If we had the power, if we had the movements, where we'd say, look, how is it that on a sunny day when everything is fine, you know, this society condemns altruism, but when push comes to shove, redistribution, solidarity, altruism, suspending uh, the tyranny of prices, you know, that's okay. Maybe, in fact, our society needs to be Structured along the lines of those moments of emergency response when people come together and share
0: now Tyler Cowan though says that uh, um, price gouging in a, in a disaster is uh, economically rational because it draws capital into the the disaster region, so we still have your ideologues of capital coming yeah. in, but the, the fact yeah. is that capitalism is very bad at dealing with long term things like this like yeah. it 's impossible. If you have some sort of standard financial valuation model, something that may happen 10, 20 years out, just doesn't figure at all. As uh, Keynes said, the average man discounts the future at a very high rate. We want everything now, and we don't want to think about the consequences. It's an economic system, but also the psychology that it creates mm-hmm. makes it very, very difficult to not, not even adapt, but even conceive of the problem in, in its proper dimensions. Mm-hmm. This is true,
2: yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the ideological war rages, you know, in terms of what I was just saying, like these possible openings uh, that you have these moments of solidarity during the crisis. But of course, those moments of solidarity are latched onto by right-wing ideologues and used to justify a libertarian future. Why do you need civil defense? Why do you need the state when you have the Cajun Navy, a bunch of volunteers in their private boats, coordinating... Well, there's a training. left version of that, too. We've
0: got, you know, anarchist mutual aid will mm-hmm. step in where the state yes. is absent, and there's just no substitute for an effective state.
2: This is true. This is true. Yeah, anarcho-liberalism enables that kind of libertarian nonsense.
0: Yeah, it was a, a brilliant coinage by uh, Vaskar Sankara, anarcho-liberalism. I'm speaking with Christian Parenti, author of Tropic of Chaos and If We Fail on the current issue of Jacobin Magazine. And we've been talking uh, about uh, the U.S. Uh, and a couple of coastal cities, but this is a worldwide problem, and in poor countries where there are also coastal cities at risk. What's it going to look like there?
2: Who knows, but uh, from my travels in such places and my reading, I think there is like almost no planning done in places like Lagos, Nigeria, and um, Rio. And it's going to look like a, a more extreme version of what's already going on in the megacities of the global south. Inequality, intense violence, suffering, disease—you uh, know—I mean, like in terms of the question of what's the future going to look like on an unequal planet, the answer is usually my answer is usually like it's going to look like a more extreme version of the present. I mean, we're in the climate crisis, as you said. I mean, we're also in the—you the, know—the sort of authoritarian, dystopian, distracted, hyper-violent future that we all imagined. Maybe not its worst version, but I mean, it's all around us. The, the levels of Millenarian madness, violence, desperation, spreading disease—that was my last book was all about that. But so that's—I mean—that's what it looked like. It looked like waves of people moving inland. Uh, the these con- the, the shifts in population leading to religious and ethnic conflicts—it's a nightmare. You know, it could be dealt with with planning, and there is the technology, and there is the money, and there is the expertise to do this if we had the political power to force the conversation in a different direction. I don't want to get to that
0: what is to be done uh, point in a, in a moment, but just to underscore the inadequacy of planning and reaction to the present, you know, Trump's EPA uh, is a frightful thing. Uh, and He may be an incompetent buffoon on uh, many other issues, but uh, his man at the EPA, Pruitt, has just totally transformed that organization into doing just the opposite of what it's supposed to do. So now they're completely MIA in Houston,
2: right? Yeah. MIA in Houston, there's thir- 13 Superfund sites have been flooded. Yeah. The chemical plant blew up? hmm There was a nuke plant that luckily has, has survived, but, you know, was um, almost inundated, a major atomic power plant. Yeah, it's, a, it's, pre- it's pretty intense. And for sure, there's not going to be any kind of study or remediation. I'm not even sure. I mean, how would you remediate the, that, that level of, you know, distribution of dioxin and these other, like, highly carcinogenic materials throughout such a wide region, I'm, you know, strip this t- the topsoil from hundreds of square miles, it doesn't make any sense. You can't do that.
0: You know, but uh, I, I didn't notice uh, this pundit, uh, Greg Valliere, who uh, watches, watches Washington for Wall Street, has been doing that for several decades, uh, said in his morning write-up that uh, maybe, you look at Houston now, maybe it's not a good idea to have a, a, a non-functioning EPA. So you know, you're seeing perhaps a dawning of consciousness in some unexpected circles.
2: Yeah, and um, and that and that and and what gets gets us to a new administration, but that's a whole other <laughs> yes. discussion. But. Uh, but now let's talk about you know this sort of talk
0: can lead one to despair, and despair can lead to resignation and inaction because uh, if you can't do anything, why not just have another drink? Mm-hmm. Right? But uh, there are things that can be done. Mm-hmm. if we had and we wouldn't need a revolutionary transformation either of our politics or our technology right this is mm-hmm. something that could more or less be done yeah. right so yeah. what what kinds of things are you talking
2: about yeah so this is like it's a point i'm constantly harping on because i feel that cynicism is one of our greatest enemies and cynicism can seem quite rational as i've said many times before we you know we have the money we have the laws even we have uh massachusetts versus epa ended up making it essential, making it necessary for the EPA to use the Clean Air Act to fine emitters, f- to fine carbon emitters. Industries would still be free to emit carbon, but they would have to pay massive fines. But th- these laws have not been promulgated. I mean, this is you know, everything is in place to do this, but it has not been promulgated neither by the Bush administration, the Obama administration, nor the Trump administration which won't do it there's the technology but then there's always the issue of like well there's you know we've crossed the tipping point there's too much co2 in the atmosphere and that is a pretty uh, overwhelming fact but there's actually new technology for a long time we've had the ability to strip co2 out of the atmosphere at a rate 100 times faster than trees can do it, and then very easily and not too expensively turn it into a a critical gas. The problem was always, well, how do you store this? And it can leak out, and and CO2 gas is uh, poisonous. In Iceland, just in the last two years, an experiment has been done whereby they mix not sulfuric acid, some sort of uh, acid, something like sulfuric acid, with water and uh, inject CO2 into it. It's essentially like carbonated, acidic uh, water that's then pushed down into basalt rock formations. And there's no heat involved in this. It's not like there's a huge energy input. And in less than two years, the CO2 gas turns into limestone. It's an acceleration of a natural process called weathering. So this is called enhanced weathering. And I mean that—that that is incredible news. I mean, we have the technology to strip CO two out of the atmosphere in huge amounts and to store it safely. That's very but,
0: expensive, though.
2: Yeah, presumably, but um, not as ex- not not as expensive as the loss of society. But you know, right now, the, the main discourse around this is is it just assumes that the private sector would somehow bring this to scale, which is ridiculous. What what's the market? I mean, how, who who are you going to sell? this like stored CO2 underground too. So obviously what has to be done is states have to take this technology and fund a project of stripping CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it like this. And so that might sound crazy, but it's like that technology exists. It's not geoengineering, well, like I, you know, polluting the atmosphere with sulfur particles to reflect sunlight, which is nuts and would be equally expensive. But these are the kinds of things that have to be thought about and demanded and this is what states should be doing with their you know, massive military resources. Just knowing that, I feel like, is important because it means, it's not that it is going to happen, but it means that you, know, you can make a credible case based in real facts for why it's not going to all just end in, a, in, in anarchy and you know, horrible disease and epidemics. Now,
0: to be fair, there's some climate activists on the left who don't like these kinds of mitigation schemes, right? Like carbon capture.
2: Yeah, well, they don't like it because it's a techno-fix. That's the the line. And there's an anti-technology bias. Um, and they also don't like it because the way it's currently used is often by the fossil fuel industry uh, to justify burning fossil fuels. So the milieu and the discourse in which these technologies are embedded are highly problematic. But that does not mean that the technologies themselves are bad. This is the classic problem that Marx talked about, right? the, The social relations become a fetter on the forces of production. That's exactly what we have with this kind of carbon capture and sequestration. Obviously, yes, the mainstream discourse around that stuff is ridiculous. But that technology is not. It's actually very important.
0: What do you think about things like a carbon tax?
2: I think a carbon tax would be very important. And we just politically... It would be impossible in this country, but that's why Massachusetts versus EPA is so important because that's a de facto carbon tax. The fact that the EPA is required to tax polluters, but it isn't. I mean, that, that's the same as a carbon tax. It means, you know, if you're going to burn coal, you're going to pay a large sum of money to the government and it's going to make burning coal not economically feasible. So we, we have the law. To implement immediately a de facto carbon tax, and we have for about 10 years. And even the environmental movement has basically not really been talking about this that much.
0: Let's conclude with the the political configuration here, because you have a group of people, relatively small but very rich, like the Kochs or the the exemplars of it. But these are people, mostly private firms, private equity guys, who uh, have made a ton of money by debasing the environment and uh, hate everything uh, to do with the state because. It threatens their fortunes. That's a lot of the people behind the Trump administration, and the Trump administration is full of, 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 of folks like that. Uh, you have kind of a mainstream of big capital, you know, the, the core of the bourgeoisie that is kind of you know, like softly interested in climate change, but not passionately so. Uh, Michael Bloomberg is a rarity among that crowd. Uh, and then there's not much of a popular force uh, to get active on it. So how can we you know, make the necessarily mobile, necessary mobilization to save ourselves?
2: Well, I think uh, that—I don't have an answer, uh, but I think that these inundations are, you know, potentially going to produce their own populations, that it might—that activism around climate change might not focus on mitigation so much as adaptation, that that's going to be the entry point. And when you have, like, 100,000 houses that are near destroyed in in Houston and 85% of them don't have flood insurance— and the federal government so far doesn't seem like it's willing to bail everyone out. You know, what kind of political movements will come out of this coastal sacrifice zone? I, I think that might be where there could be a mass constituency that starts really pressuring for action on this. And it will be in response to adaptation, to adapting to these crises and to recovery from these crises. And then that will link into the, the, the deeper problem of, well, how do we mitigate it? How do we get off fossil fuels? Coast dwellers of the world unite. You have nothing but your homes to lose.
0: (laughs) Or to gain. That's right. I was Christian Parenti, author of If We Fail on the current issue of Jacobin. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. I've reached the age where I look to the New York Times for musical tips. Embarrassing, I know. Here's a band I learned about in the piece they ran on September 1st, Rock's Not Dead, It's Ruled by Women. This is a bit of Diana Cazzadora from War on Women. Till next week, bye.